conference that began with 55 five years ago has now grown to well over 250. In our keynote yesterday was Bob Russell. Bob's going to be preaching morning service at 11 o'clock today. But right now, will you help me welcome from Louisville, Kentucky, Bob Russell. Thank you, Greg, and I'm glad to be here today. Uh, and Ken Dickerson, this old guy sitting up here, is going to be my reader. Uh, turn to the uh, book of Acts, the ninth chapter. Ken, how many years have you been married? I've missed your wife. Forty-nine. Forty-nine years. I have a guy, a friend of mine in the church, John Foster, who's been married, celebrating his 56th anniversary of the national He said, I believe the first 56 years of the harvest. Dear brother, guy celebrating his 50th anniversary, and then a couple uh, on the 50th anniversary were going through all their congratulatory cards, and they came upon one that was more spectacular than any other. It's just beautiful calligraphy and gold embroidery. And it says on one side, uh, congratulations on your 50th anniversary. The other side it said, I am so proud of your faithfulness to one another. I will grant you any one prayer request that you have. Signed, God. <laughs> and a couple looked at that and they speculated who could this be from and they went through all their friends they just couldn't calculate who it was finally the wife said do you think maybe it could be from God she said let's try she said I wish we had a cruise in the Caribbean for our 50th anniversary and poof there were two tickets to the finest cruise line right on the desk in front of the husband said this is great I wish I had a wife 20 years younger than me <laughs> And Poopy's 90 years old. <laughs> That's kind of the direction we're going. Okay, I'm going to have a lesson today. I'll have a lesson today about the second most important event in history. Now, as Christians, we believe the most important event ever in history was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That he died for our sins, he was buried in Risen again, First uh, Corinthians 15 says these things are first important. We believe that the most important event to come is the second coming of Jesus Christ. What do you think people would say would be the second most important event in history? Some would say, well, the invention of the wheel, or the combustion engine, or uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, or uh, some other event, the Revolutionary War, or the Internet, the invention of the Internet. But... I'm going to suggest the second most important event to ever occur is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul became the leading spokesman for the Christian faith, the world's greatest missionary, wrote almost half of the New Testament. He's the prized convert in Christian history. And his conversion is recorded three times in detail in the book of Acts, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. And other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's, I, I can't think of a historical event in the Bible given that much attention. What George Washington was to the American Revolution, 
Saul of Tarsus was to the early church. What I want us to do is to look at Acts 9 and see how God selected Saul to be a chosen vessel to help build the church from the beginning. God saw something in Saul that nobody else saw. And it took a dramatic, miraculous conversion experience to humble him and condition him for Christ's service. Now, as we go through this, Saul's experience is not the norm. But uh, a study of his life provides us with some practical lessons about how God shapes leaders to influence his people and build his church. I'll tell you why I selected this. Greg told me that he wanted me to have a lesson about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So we got all this talk today about leadership. We need to have some emphasis, and you are having some emphasis on followership. And if ever there's an example of somebody who was living for self and arrogantly defying God and yet turned around and became a good follower of Jesus Christ, it's Paul. And hopefully we'll learn some lessons through this study about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, Kent. And I, I do go way back to Kent. He used to uh, be a part of the Lincoln Christian College basketball team. And I was with Cincinnati. Was, I was Cincinnati Christian <laughs> College. And we always beat them. <laughs> but back in 1963, on the day that Kennedy was assassinated, we were supposed to play uh, Lincoln Christian College that night. They were on our campus. And we had a television in my room. And they came in. The opposing team came in to watch uh, the story about the, what was going on with the assassination of Kennedy. And I looked around and said, well, we got the adversary in our room. And there was Kent Dickerson and Lynn Laughlin and those guys. And we became friends as, as a result of that. So, Kent, would you uh, just read the first two verses of Acts 9? Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that, he might, so, so that if he found any there to the way men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I'm telling you, you're not, real, you're not real familiar with the Bible. <laughs> book of Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. <laughs> Uh, Saul was the number one enemy of the church. If you were a Christian in the first century, you would have hated you would have worked and not tried to hate but you would have despised Saul of Tarsus. Arrogant, ambitious, enemy of the church. Ruthless, brutal, very intelligent man. Who would you say would be the number one enemy of the church in America today. I ask you, okay, who who kind of stirs your anger? This is a live audience, isn't it? <laughs> you can talk back. I may say nothing. It's something personal that kind of gets under your skin a little bit. Hates the church. Well, it used to be Madeline Muriel O'Hare. We say, well, Michael Moore. Rosie Ozama, still not named the guy I'm thinking about. Who said? Bill Maher. You know who Bill Maher is? He is arrogant, unbeliever. He's the guy who called Tim Tebow a dirtbag. And he just 
if you ever see him interviewed, he ridicules anybody who believes the Bible, sneers at us. Wayne Smith used to say, I know the Bible says we're not to hate anybody, but if that rule ever changes, I got my guy picked out. <laughs> well, there's a sense in which Saul of Tarsus was the Bill Maher of the first century. And he was uh, leading a small army, says he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, why was Saul so adamant against the church? Well, if you go back to the 7th chapter, verse 58 through 60, Saul was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. It says those who stoned Stephen laid their clothing at the feet of a, a young man named Saul who was giving consent to his death. Saul was there and he witnessed Stephen dying and saying, Lord, don't lay this sin against their charge. In your hands I commit my spirit. And that disturbed Saul, I think. Uh, somebody said that Christianity owes the conversion of Saul to the uh, martyrdom of Stephen because that pricked his conscience. And maybe he's breathing out murderous threats against the church to try to counter that conscience that was bothering him. And uh, Saul's personality, I think, was the kind of guy, there's no middle ground. Either he's all against something or he's all for something. And, uh, but the main reason he was so opposed to Jesus was Jesus was a threat to his personal ambition. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He wanted to be probably a member of the Sanhedrin someday. And Jesus was draining the influence of the Sanhedrin. The very ambitions that he had, Christians were defecting from that. And they were no longer following the law, no longer admiring the Sanhedrin. And that was a threat to his ambitions. And uh, that's why today, I wonder why, why is Bill Maher so opposed to such an innocent, genuine person like Tim Tebow? That's kind of a threat to his unbelief. I mean, here's a guy who genuinely believes and he's not a hypocrite and it's making a difference and a lot of people following after him and it's a threat. So Saul hated the church. He saw that as a threat to the person he wanted to become. Let's go on and read verses 3 through 9 10. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see it. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Um, he's struck to the ground just outside Damascus. He's taking this small army. He's heard that Christians have fled Jerusalem. He's running out of Christians to arrest and persecute. They've gone to Damascus, so he gets permission from the authorities to go to Damascus and arrest those Christians who were formerly from Jerusalem and bring them back for trial. But just outside the city gate, a bright light strikes him to the ground. I had a light like that when, well, actually twice in my my life. I was in Phoenix, Arizona, traveling on a main uh, 
thoroughfare there, and all of a sudden the bright light struck like that, and I thought, that was lightning, and nothing happened, there were no clouds in the sky. The next day I went down through the same intersection, again, just bright light, nearly, nearly blinded. I had no idea what it was. But about three weeks later at home, I got this notice in the mail from the police department of Phoenix. Anybody ever been there? They have a camera that takes you a picture if you're speeding. And I was going 15 miles over the speed limit. I think the speed limit was 20 and I was going 35 or something like that. I think it was... Maybe 50, I was about 65. But it has a picture. When you get this in the mail, you get this picture, and it shows you right behind. You look like a criminal. Number <laughs> cost me $165 per ticket. What a pleasant experience. Well, a bright light struck, saw that. Remember when Jesus arose from the grave? There was a bright flash of light that struck the soldiers to the ground. Well, this bright light it is Jesus knocking him to the ground. Four things happened. In this paragraph, that humbled this arrogant man. You now, God can humble the proudest soul in a second's time. Here, look at the four things that happened to Saul that humbled him. Number one, God knocked him to the ground. When you get, you ever fall down in front of people? There's something about your dad. When your dad falls down, when I fall down in front of my kids. They think that's the funniest thing they've ever seen. Before they even ask me how I'm doing, they start laughing. I could have a broken neck. They're still laughing. I preached in uh, New York City a while back on Long Island, and there's a church there that seats about 200 people, and not many of our preachers go up there. And they were so thankful that I came and was packed out. And when I have to preach the sermon, the best that I could preach, I went to sit down and I stumbled for the first step and I dove into the first pew. And to this day, people will see me and say, I was in that church in New York. I don't know if you fell down. <laughs> they don't remember anything about my sermon. They just remember. And I tell you, it's always a humbling experience when you fall. Saul was not there in front of, of these men that he was leading. A second thing to humble him is that God proved him wrong. He's out to persecute Jesus. Jesus is a farce. There's no such thing as a resurrection. And he says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And this proud intellectual had to admit he's absolutely wrong. Isn't that a humbling experience when you've got to admit you're wrong? My wife and I are both pretty strong, choleric personalities. And... Uh, we wound up telling each other what to do. I was on the west coast, uh, on the east coast, as we were traveling toward Richmond, and she said, you're going the wrong way on the expressway. I said, no, I'm going the right way. No, you're going absolutely the wrong way. We passed a sign that proved that Judy was right, and she didn't see it. And for the next five miles, I thought, how can I get off this? <laughs> Jesus, who you're persecuting. That's the second thing. The third thing that humbled him, God told him to wait for orders from another. Jesus didn't say, here's what you're supposed to do. He said, you wait. Uh, uh, you go to the city, and there you will be told what you do, what to do. You're under order. And it humbled him to say, I'm just, 
I can't do anything but wait. And the fourth thing, God struck him blind. And that would be a humbling experience. This man who had come to intimidate the people in Damascus now has to be led by the hand. He, he can't even see where he's going. God humbled Saul. You know what? You can't be a good follower of Jesus Christ until you're first humble. Uh, you can't say, thy will be done, until you say, my will be gone. You can't have the Lord fill you until you empty yourself. And if you don't do that, the Lord will find some way to humble you. Your health will break, your sin will be exposed, your investments will go south, your children will disappoint you, and you will be humble. So here's the, the first lesson I want you to learn. A follower must first develop a submissive spirit to the authority of Jesus Christ. He said, who are you, Lord? The world will tell you, you've got to be your own boss. You follow your own feelings. If it feels good, do it. Follow your heart. If the chemistry is right, go for it. Think of Bobby Petrino, the coach of Arkansas football team. His heart tells him to chase after this 25-year-old girl who's on a motorcycle ride with her and he has an accident. And he's humbled. He's, he's lost his job. The Christian is under the commands of Jesus Christ. And uh, whatever the Lord says to do, we're to do. And sometimes the Lord commands us to do things that don't make sense. He says, go be baptized. That makes sense. What's water have to do with it? You just do it. Lord says, tithe your income. Well, time to you, you do what you're, you're commanded to do. Or you forgive your neighbor. I'm feel revenge. No, Jesus Christ is Lord. The first step in being a follower of Jesus Christ is who are you, Lord? I will follow you. I, I'll, I'll do what you, you tell me to do. And you know that comes up all the time, even in Christian people. You have to swallow not only your feelings, you have to swallow your intellect, intellectual pride. Uh, you think the world happened because of creation or it happened because of evolution? Well, Jesus is Lord. What did Jesus say? Have you not read at the beginning God made them male and female? End of discussion. If you're a Christian, you're following Christ. His word is true. You think there's many ways to God or just one way? If you're good, a good person, won't God save you? But Jesus said, I am the way no one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, you, 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 to be a follower of Jesus, you have this spirit of surrender that whatever he says, you do. Jay Adams in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual, tells of a deacon in the church who came to him and said, I, I want to be the first to tell you, preacher, my wife and I don't love each other anymore, so we're going to get a divorce. And the preacher said, well, I do hate to hear that, but you know, you're, you're a Christian, you're to follow Jesus Christ, and his word says, don't divorce your mate, so you shouldn't divorce her. He said, well, let me be honest with you, we don't feel anything for each other anymore. There's no, there's no love there. And uh, the preacher said, well, uh, let's go a little deeper. The Bible says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. You've got no option, but you've got a lover. You're commanded by Jesus Christ to love her. So I'm going to be real honest with you, preacher. I despise her. I can't stand the way she walks. I can't stand the way she treats the kids. I can't stand the way she looks. I want to, and she can't stand me. He said, well, let's go to a lower level. Then the Bible also says, love your enemies. 
You know, you got no option. You got to love it. It's commandment. He said, "I don't understand. How, how can I do that? I don't feel anything for it. That'd be hypocrisy." No, he said, "That wouldn't be hypocrisy. That'd be obedience." Said, make a list of the things that you would do if you did love her, and do them anyway, and eventually you'll love her. Because uh, one of the founders of uh, modern psychology said, if you act uh, the way you wish you felt, you'll eventually feel the way you act. It's a lot easier to act yourself in a way of feeling than feeling yourself in a way of acting. Now I said, I can't do that. That would be about No, that, that's obedience. You see, if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you say, who are you, Lord? What would you have me do? And you swallow your feelings sometimes because the Bible says abstain from the evil desires of war against your soul. The Bible says deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Christ. And you swallow your intellectual pride and you say, whatever Jesus said is going to be my word. I follow him. That's hard for people to do. But that's why God humbled Saul of Tarsus. Okay, let's go on and read uh, the next section. Uh, verses... 10 through 14. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Okay, let's stop there. I want you to put yourself in Ananias' shoes. Maybe he was from Jerusalem. He fled to Damascus and he was there to hide. They heard about Saul of Tarsus and they were all worried about him coming. And all of a sudden, uh, God appears to Ananias and he gives him specific orders. He says, Ananias, yes, Lord. I've got a job for you to do. Okay, Lord, I'm ready. I want you to go to Straight Street. I know exactly where it is. Here's the address. I think I can find it. There's a man there who's waiting for you. Good. And he's been praying. All right, I'm ready to go. His name is Saul. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> I've heard about this guy. He's coming here. Lord, did you know that he's coming here to persecute us? Isn't that amazing? We tell God. When I was sitting at about uh, some of the kids started a mission in Laurel Home, which is a real uh, deprived and depraved inner city area, and some of the kids who had come from the country couldn't get over how bad this area was. We had a prayer meeting about one of the kids prayed, Lord, if you could see what was going on down here. <laughs> well, well, I think the Lord probably knew about it. And I said, Wait a minute, Lord, this guy is coming here to persecute us. How would you feel? If you feel led of your, in your heart to go talk to somebody and say, hey, Lord, that guy is a drunk. That woman is really loose with her morals. That guy's a bookie. You want me to go talk to Bill Maher? He'll, he'll make mincemeat out of me. No. And the Lord said, you go. Uh, he's a chosen vessel for me. And uh, I, he's, I prepared him in advance. I've already humbled him. We have a couple in our church in Louisville named Charles and Nancy Horan. And Charles was not a Christian, but they were a young couple living in kind of a rough section of Louisville because they didn't have a lot of money. And Nancy awakened one night in the middle of the night, 2.30 in the morning, and she heard some thieves in her kitchen going through the drawers. She decided not to awaken her husband for fear he would get hurt. 
She just hoped and prayed they would go away. So leave there terrified. But the things didn't go away. They came into the bedroom and started going through the drawer. And one of them flashed his flashlight toward Nancy, and she heard him say, "They're awake." And then the other one turned, and she saw that he had a gun. And Nancy screamed when she saw the gun. And Charles awakened, sat straight up in bed, looking down the barrel of this gun. And the thief fired three times, and they fled. Well, they called the police. When the police came, they got their breath. And Charles said they must have been firing blanks. They sure couldn't miss it that close range. And they looked, and one bullet was in the headboard, one was in the pillow, and one apparently had gone between Charles' legs. Charles said to Nancy, now 3.30 in the morning, pack enough clothes. We're not staying here another night. And they packed that night and came out to their aunt, whose name was Dolly Carey, who was a member of our church. The next day, Dolly Carey called me, and she said, I have a nephew who is not a Christian, but I think he's about ready to hear it. <laughs> I went to talk to Charles. I have never met a more pliable prospect. Next Sunday, next Sunday, he came and was baptized. And Charles and Nancy were active in our children's department for years. They're still an active part of Southeast Christian Church. You know, sometimes the Lord lays it on your heart to go talk to somebody, invite somebody to church, and talk to them about the Lord. And you don't know, they may have been prepared in advance. You don't know what's going on in their heart. Ananias was told, you go to Saul of Tarsus. I've prepared his heart. And he said, I am going to show him how much, and you would expect it to read, how much he will accomplish in my name. That's not what it says. How much he will what? Suffer. In my name. So Saul of Tarsus is going to go through a lot. He lists all those things in 2 Corinthians 11 about I spent a night and day in the open sea, been constantly moving in danger from bandits and uh, attacked by my own countrymen and the Gentiles, and uh, I've gone without sleep, been hungry and thirsty, been cold and naked, got all this pressure. Saul suffered a lot, he was a chosen vessel. But let's go on and read about his baptism, verses 17 and 19. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell off Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Uh, in the 22nd chapter, Ananias says to Saul, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and call upon the name of the Lord, washing away your sins. So here's a second step in being a follower of Jesus. First step is that you submit to Jesus as your authority. Here's a tougher step. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you have to be submissive to God's designated leaders. It's one thing if Jesus tells you to do something. It's something else if somebody who has been delegated with the authority of Christ tells you to do something. If you're a follower of Christ, you respect that leadership. The Lord has established several institutions in the world. One is the family, the second is the government, and the third is the church. 
In the family, there's delegated authority. The father and mother are delegated authorities over the children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you obey your parents and respect them, even though they're not perfect. They are delegated authority. Or if you are a citizen of a country, the Lord has delegated authority to police and teachers and to certain people who are over you, and you are to have a submissive spirit to them. I have two sons. One is a preacher, and the other is a policeman. And uh, I have love and justice represented in our home. <laughs> but my son, who is a policeman, a sergeant in the local police department, said it's unbelievable how disrespectful people can be. He said, you know, if a policeman tells you to stop, what are you supposed to do? Stop. Why? Because a policeman is perfect? No. Because you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. That's de delegated authority. And we're told in Scripture to respect the government. He said that there was a lady who was driving so recklessly, she nearly endangered everybody's health. And he stopped her and he was irritated with her. He said, what were you thinking? And she said, don't talk condescendingly to me. I have my master's. <laughs> you need to go back to school and learn a little bit more about driving you know people are so disrespectful but we're also and here's the tough part Christian people we're to respect the delegated leaders in the church who are the delegated leaders in the church the elders the ministers and unless they lead you in some way that is diametrically opposed to scripture you're to have a submissive spirit to the leaders of the church. The mean can't question. But you come to the point you say, okay, that's what you think is best. We'll, we'll. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority, for they are men who must uh, give an account. They're not giving account, but you're to obey them. We have in our church uh, uh, what we used to call a discipline committee of elders, and if somebody in the church is doing something wrong, they're suing somebody, or they're involved in behavior that's not right, or they're leaving their mate or living with somebody without marriage. It's the it used to be the discipline committee. We changed the name of it. It's the restoration committee now. For obvious reasons. If you call out from the discipline committee, can I come see you? The restoration committee just have a better now, but it's unbelievable how many times people when they over to come and talk to somebody about their behavior, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. Who are you? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not just Jesus is Lord. You respect the delegated authority in the home, in the government, and in the church. And Ananias came and said to Saul, okay, here's what you're supposed to do, Saul. I'm here from the Lord. You arise and be baptized. And lay his hands on him. Now, in the New Testament, the laying on of hands had several different purposes. One was it was a sign of ordination, Acts 6, 6. Says so they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. It's just a sign we're setting these people apart. Sometimes laying out of hands was for the imparting of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But in this instance, the laying out of hands was a source of healing. Uh, Jesus sometimes laid his hands on people and healed them. But Ananias laid his hands on Saul and his health was restored and suddenly he could see again. What a relief that was. His eyes were opened, and he immediately is baptized, and, and his sins are washed, and he's fed, and he's energized. Now let's go on and see what happens in the basket. By the way, what time am I supposed to quit?
Two o'clock? Now? <laughs> okay. Read verses uh, 20 through 25. 20 through 25. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God, and all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Saul went from just persecuting the church, and in a matter of two days now, he becomes this uh, apologist for Jesus Christ. And at first, the Christians didn't believe it. They said, Brian, are you sure he's converted? Uh, are, are you sure that this is authentic? Uh, he might just be trying to infiltrate our group to find out who we are, and then he's going to really wreak havoc. So they held him at an arm's distance. But the Bible says here, Saul grew more and more powerful, baffled the Jews, uh, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, he was just so adamant and so intellectual that uh, now he, he, he's the, the prized convert. You know, when Charles Colson, Charles Colson died yesterday. Uh, and Bob, what, what's the headline reading today in the paper, newspaper here? You know what the headline was? <coughs> evil, evil force for Nixon, evil something. Yeah. Is that what it was? Evil force for Nixon dies. I mean, here's a man who's devoted about the last 30 some years of his life to Christianity, but there's still some in the world that can't believe that it's legitimate. And the more legitimate he was, the more they hated him because it's such a powerful force for good. And when he dies, instead of saying, founder of Prison Fellowship, author of many wonderful Christian books, a wonderful preacher of the gospel, uh, they say, the evil force for Nixon dies. And that's the way the, the uh, adversaries of Christ <coughs> treated the apostle Paul once he was disconverted. He's proven that Jesus is Christ, and now they're opposed to him. A woman by the name of Abby Johnson was a worker in Planned Parenthood and participated in abortions. You know this story? Uh, she was helping an abortion doctor with an ultrasound and she saw the baby in the womb squirm trying to get away from the sharp instrument that was going to take that baby's life. She dropped the ultrasound, concluded, I will never do this again. And now she's out testifying for life. But Planned Parenthood got a court injunction against Abby Johnson trying to prevent her from saying anything derogatory against the organization that she once worked for because uh, she knows too much. She's proving that they exist to facilitate abortions. 
Well, Saul of Tarsus is a big stir because he was so opposed to Christianity. But now he's been converted by Jesus Christ. The Christians start rejoicing. They're ecstatic. No more persecution from Saul. He's on our side. But the opposition is disturbed, and they decided they've got to kill him. He's had a sunstroke or something. He's gone over to the other side. He's got to be stopped. So they plotted to kill him. And Christians rallied to his rescue. And you know how they escort him out of town? They put him in this basket and lower him over a wall at night. And later when he talks about the experiences that he had in life that humiliated him, he said, I was even lowered in a basket over the wall at night to escape Damascus. Now he goes back and he leaves Damascus because of a threat of being killed. And he goes back to Jerusalem. Look what happens in Jerusalem, verses 26 and 27. When he came to Jerusalem, he he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Now you know that Barnabas is a wonderful encourager in the New Testament, encouraged by people for his generosity. Now he's the one who believes when Saul comes back to Jerusalem that he really is converted. And he takes Saul under his wing and he introduces him to the church and said, this is legitimate. This is for real. And uh, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. Go on to read verses 28 to 31. So Saul, Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with Christian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Saul comes back to Jerusalem, and the Christians finally welcome him. But the non-Christians try to persecute him, even in Jerusalem, and, and they begin to, to threaten the church. And finally the Christians there say, you know, we couldn't stand it when Saul was against us, we got persecuted. Now Saul's for us, and we're still getting persecuted. And they send him back to his hometown and says, finally, the church enjoyed a time of peace. They're saying, thank God, Saul's finally out of town, because wherever he goes, he starts to lie, whether he's for us or against us, he can... He encourages persecution. So here's a, a third lesson about if you're following Christ. If you're really following Christ, there has to be a willingness to suffer persecution. There are going to be people who oppose you if you stand for Jesus Christ. That's becoming increasingly the case in America today, where if you stand for biblical values, you're going to take some hits. I wrote a book a while back about Southeast Christian Church, and it was called uh, When God Builds a Church. And our publisher lined up some interviews for me on radio and television, where I'd go in, the, the uh, host or hostess would ask some softball questions. I'd talk about the book. I'd try to get people to buy the book. But I walked into a local PBS station, forgetting about their liberal bias, and the hostess began the program by saying, our special guest today is the Reverend Bob Russell. You know how breathy they get on the TV. <laughs> our special guest today is the Reverend Bob Russell, minister of the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. One of the largest churches in the nation. 
But some say the church is anti-Semitic. Some say the church is homophobic. Some say the church is anti-women. Some say the church is a cult. We're going to be talking about those things when we come right back. <laughs> well, I didn't want to come right back. I don't want to come right back. And for the next hour and a half, I feel it. one hostile question after another. She had prearranged callers who were calling in and badgering me. And I walked out of there saying, you know, this is not a, a, a Christian nation that I grew up in. This is a hostile nation toward Jesus Christ. And, and let me tell you, if you have the courage to stand for biblical values, you're going to be attacked or somebody's going to get angry at you. If you dare say, wait a minute, I believe that the Bible story of creation is true. Or you say, wait a minute, I believe that life is sacred from the womb to the pit. Wait a minute, I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman only. Wait a minute, I believe that there's one way to God through Jesus Christ. I, I believe there's absolute truth in the Bible in the Ten Commandments. You, you better get ready. Uh... If you're in an intellectual circle or you're in a sophisticated circle, you're going to be labeled as intolerant and ignorant and a bigot. The president of a university in our town is a member of our church. He was interviewed in a magazine, and they said, you're a, a member of Southeast Christian Church? He said, yes, I am. How do you feel about their position about gay marriage? He said... I disagree with my church's position on gay marriage. I think it's okay. That's such a disappointment to me. But that's the way people are getting out of it today. I know my church teaches that. That's not what I believe. If he would have said, I agree that marriage should be between a man and a woman, what do you think would have happened to him? He would have had all kind of flack from... Uh, gay rights organizations, and you might lose a job. And all kind of letters to the editor. The easy way out is say, well, my church, I love the church, I love the big church, that's one issue I disagree. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you follow what's in his word, you follow delegated authority, even if it means persecution. I'll tell you why it's not fun. We built a wonderful church building, and we tried to up our missions giving when we built the church building. But we got some flack from the community about spending millions of dollars for a church building. Very first service in the building. Three television stations are there, CNN is there, USA Today has a representative there. I'm preaching two minutes, and a gay rights activist stands up in the balcony, first time he'd ever been in our church, and he yelled out at me and said, That's absurd! Jesus is humble and compassionate, not like you. And we found out the acoustics in our building are very good. <laughs> I figured, well, I got the microphone, I'm going to keep on teaching and ignoring. He moved down to the front of the balcony and he yelled, Wake up, people! This man's trying to dupe you. You shouldn't be spending millions of dollars on a building. You ought to be giving this money to the poor. And I looked and our security personnel were circling him. I said, it's a good thing because my redneck friends were circling them too. <laughs> but they ushered him out and arrested him. If the church today 
takes a stand for truth, and we're to speak the truth in love, you're going to take some persecution. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. He said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven. If there are times when the First Christian Church in Clinton, Illinois, is not embraced by the world and receives some hostile reaction from the world, don't get panicky about that. That's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if the world hates me, what? They're going to hate you. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means a total surrender to Jesus as Lord. A willingness to respect and follow his delegated authority at the expense of occasionally not being popular with the world. Okay, let's go on and read the next section. Kent, uh, is that the end? Okay, let me wrap it up and uh, say being a follower of Jesus Christ is a lot more than just getting baptized. It's saying, I make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Let's review those four things. The surrender to the Lordship of Christ over our personal feelings and our own anointing. Number two, the submission to the Lord's delegated authority, even though uh, you may disagree with what they're saying. Thirdly, a willingness to be persecuted or ridiculed for Jesus Christ, and that's not easy. And a follower of Jesus Christ makes a decision to put the welfare of the church above their own ego. That last one, Saul left town and he was willing to, for 10 years, live in the security so that the church wasn't persecuted, so he could be ready to be uh, the ambassador of Christ. There are times when you say, I'll swallow my ego for the good of the church. I'm thinking about a lot of things there. When it came time for me to retire, we had an associate minister who was going to take over. And I said, Dave Stone's going to be the associate, and we're going to be the new senior minister, and Kyle Adams is going to be the associate. And Justice Kent set a wonderful example here of somebody who swallowed his own ego and said, okay, Greg's now the senior pastor, and we're going to work together. And Greg swallows his ego and lets uh, Kent do all the, the funerals, lets Kent get the um, double the salary that Greg <laughs> There were times I had to swallow my pride and say, this is for the good of the church. I, I'll never forget uh, when the secretary came to me one day and she said, Bob, could you do a funeral on Friday? And I said, no, I can't. I've got something. Ask Dave Stone to do it. And she said, well, Dave was their first choice and he couldn't do it. She just wanted to do it. <laughs> now, it's easy for you to laugh about that, but there's a certain amount of ego in all of us. And as we get older, people, we might have had a position of authority, position of respect and responsibility. But we say, for the good of the church, I'm going to swallow my ego. Gene Apple tells that when they started to use 
some upbeat music at his church in Las Vegas. The president of University of UNLV uh, was an elder of the church. He was standing in back, and a guy came up to him and said, do you like that loud rock music? He said, no, I don't. I don't like it at all. He said, see all those kids down front? I like them. I like them here. And music is a style. It's a method. It's not a biblical principle, so I'm going to swallow so we can reach them. And there are times when you follow Jesus Christ, the good of the church becomes more important than your own ego. Hmm. Let's pray.